Jones, just to catch you up, the letter is starts with James, who is the half-brother of Jesus. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, right off the bat, declares that he is a servant of God and his brother. He admits, yes, my brother, my, who I grew up with, is the Messiah, is God in the flesh. And James says he is writing primarily to Jewish Christians who have been scattered abroad due to persecution. This letter was written probably, it's the earliest of the New Testament letters. It's probably written in conjunction with somewhere around Acts 8 when the persecution of the church in Jerusalem starts to happen. These are first generation Christians. Many of them knew Jesus, saw Jesus, and they're trying to figure out how to live as if Jesus was with them, even though he had died, risen from the dead, and ascended into heaven. And the first thing in this letter James tells them is, to, is that in all that they do, they should count it all joy when, not if, but when they meet trials of various kinds. Remember that their confidence and worship of God is not based on them or on their situation, but rather on God himself. And in doing so, as you count it all joy, as you dedicate your life to remembering God's goodness and faithfulness, it will produce in us a steadfastness, is the word he uses, an enduring active patience, which will grow and develop in us to a full and complete spiritual maturity over time. But as we said when we looked at that passage, patience takes patience. It also takes wisdom. Which God, James says, will give generously for those who actually want it, who are actually humble enough to know that they need it and are willing to respond when they receive it. And so James gives us a couple of examples of what wisdom looks like played out in our world. And he talks about the poor and the rich and for both the reality that this life is short and fleeting and temporary and, fa and failing and falling away. And beyond that, beyond this world, beyond this life is eternity. And so when it comes to our status here and now, it is far more important to be in a relationship with God, to be counted among his children than to be exalted and propped up here because this stuff is temporary. And so that catches us up to where we are today going into verse 12. James is going to return to the notion of trials and testing and temptation, still all connected to this same process he's been writing about the whole chapter. Now, it feels sometimes in James like he's jumping around from point to point, right? He's talking about joy, he's talking about trials, and then he's talking about um, persecution. He's talking about the wind and the waves and rich and poor. It's all connected. He's still all talking about the same process. The fact that all of this is about where are our hearts and minds focused? Where are our hearts and minds being set on God in the midst of hardship, in the midst of trials? That's really been the focus of this opening verses, and we're going to see it continue on today. Where is our focus? What is our heart dwelling on? That's what we're looking at this morning. So let's pray uh, and jump into James chapter 1. So please bow your heads and pray with me. God, we come to you this morning needing you. God, the things that we don't know help us to understand. The things that we can't see give us sight to see them. The things that are hard to believe help us with our unbelief. God, we come this morning opening your word, knowing your word is, all of your word is for all of us, and you have a word for us today. Each one of us is here this morning, not by chance or happenstance or even just out of duty and responsibility and routine, but rather because this is your divine will, that you would have us in this book on this morning because you have something to say to each one of us. 
So God, help us to set aside to-do lists and plans and worries. Help us to put those things to the side and, and be present this morning because you are present here this morning. So help us to listen and help us to respond to what it is you have to say to us this morning. Lord, as I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. We're going to start in James uh, 1, starting in verse 12. We'll read a bit of this, and then we'll come back and talk about it. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of life, lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And we will stop there. So he opens up here in verse 12, and he says, Blessed is the man, and that's blessed is the person, blessed is whoever it is that remains steadfast under trial. Again, we've talked over and over again about how James' two big, uh, two big motivating factors, two big influences are the book of Proverbs and the Sermon on the Mount. And so again, we hear the words of his brother kind of echoing through his pen, the opening verses of the Sermon on the Mount, known as the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are the hungry, blessed are the merciful, blessed, beloved, cared for, loved, looked over fondly. James uses it and says, blessed is the one who remains steadfast under trial. We saw this word steadfast a few weeks ago. Active, persistent perseverance. Active, persistent patience. Blessed is the one who is steadfast under trial. In the midst of it, keep on moving. Keep on going. It is not just sitting by and waiting and letting things happen to you, but rather in the midst of that trial, in the midst of that testing, you are moving forward. You are learning. You are asking questions. You are enduring actively, not just hiding and trying to get by, but engaging with the situation so that you might experience the growth God has for you. Don't just stick your head in the sand because it's hard, but rather examine and embrace and engage with the world around you, knowing God is in control of all things at all times, and he has a plan and purpose for you. James says, when you endure, there is something to look forward to. He says, you will receive the crown of life. The Bible uses sports metaphors often, especially in the New Testament. See, some of you guys think it's just me in the sports thing. No, the Bible did it first. Paul does it all the time. James does it here. He's talking about this crown of life. In those days, in the uh, early, before even the Olympics were an official thing, but in those early competition days when they would run races or they would have battles, wrestling matches, all these things, you would, the winners would receive a crown made of branches. James uses this idea of victory in competition for the crown of life. And he isn't the only one, like I said, Paul writes about victory and competition being equivalent to running the race and living out your life. And this crown of life, even Jesus talks about in Revelation 2. As he's addressing the different churches in Revelation 2, he says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. 
Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. It is a gift of victory. The gift of celebration is is an acknowledgement from the maker of all existence. Well done, my good and faithful servant, waiting for the one who remains steadfast. And James says this is promised by God. We can endure. We can persevere, not because of us, not because of how impressive we think we are, not standing in our own power, but standing in the power of Christ. We can keep trusting him, keep moving forward in trials, not because of us or even because of the results, but because of God. He has proven himself faithful and trustworthy and reliable time and time again. And when he makes a promise, he will keep that promise. He is the character of God. It is the revelation of himself to us that allows us to trust him. That gives us reason and motivation to endure. Not us, not our impressiveness, not even the gift of the crown of life, but the faithful love of God, the faithfulness of him who has started this thing in us and will continue to see it through until the day we meet him. And so as we consider the faithful love and provision of God, that should influence how we respond as we live and experience trials and temptations. He goes on in verse 13. Let no one say when they are tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. We saw in the first, the opening verses of this letter, the word trial and temptation are both the same word. He's using the same word. It's a situation case by case. It's about context. And so really any situation has the potential to be either a trial or a temptation at the same time. The best example, I think, is the book of Job. Right? Satan goes to God. And ask permission because he has to ask permission because he is not God's yin to his yang. He's not the other half of the coin. He is a subject to God. He has to ask permission for God to allow him to do anything. And he asks God permission to tempt Job. To see if he can get this man to walk away from his faith. To curse God and walk away. He wants to make Job sin and stop being faithful to God. God in turn allows this, seeing it as a trial for Job to have his faith strengthened. And so that's the difference. You see, we have trial and we have temptation. Same word, different ideas. When we're talking about it as a trial, something is a trial, it is something that gives us the opportunity to grow and develop through enduring something hard and even exhausting. Right? We said a couple weeks ago, it's, it's like working out. We train our muscles to lift more, to run longer, to perform under greater and greater strain and stress. Trials, there's the idea of enduring something with a goal of greater strength and performance. Biblically speaking, Peter uses this word in talking about the refiner's fire. You take take gold and you put it into the fire, and the fire so hot will burn off the impurities, leaving you with the strongest, most pure version of gold. Usually trials are external. It is an external situation, an external event that we are having to deal with. And on the other side, you have temptation. Temptation leads us to pursue wickedness and evil and sin. The goal of temptation is always destruction. Satan's job, Satan's goal with Job was to destroy him. Usually temptation is internal. Trials tend to be external. Temptation tends to be internal. So when we are tempted, we should not run to blaming God, James says. But it happens. 
it's been happening since the beginning. It's been happening since Genesis 3. Adam and Eve are in the garden, are in perfection. God says there's one rule. There's one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat of any other tree. You can eat of any other fruit. Everything else I have given you, you can eat of all of it. This one tree, do not eat of it. You can swing on it. You can climb on it. You can dance around it. Do whatever you just don't eat of the fruit. It's the one rule he gave them. Adam and Eve are, find themselves in a situation where they are offered the fruit of the tree by Satan. They weren't supposed to eat in it, but eat it, but this is an opportunity of trial or tempting. They give in to the temptation and let sin and they eat of it, and in doing so, sin enters the world. The relationship between God and man, God, man and one another, man and creation, all of it has been ruined and broken by the fall. God comes looking for them. Adam and Eve hear God's footsteps in the garden. They go and they hide. God calls out for them, confronts them. God says to Adam, What have you done? Adam responds in Genesis 3.12, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. God, it's not my fault. That, that woman you made, she's the bad one. She gave it to you. You made her. This is on you. And then she gave it to me. It's on one of you two. Immediately, he's trying to cast blame. And we've been doing that over and over. We want someone else to blame. When something goes wrong, when something is hard, when we're walking through a trial, God, how could you do this to me? God, how could you allow this to happen? But James says, God will not tempt you. He may give you and allow you to walk through trials, to walk through hardships, but he will not lead you to pursue wickedness and sin. That's the goal of temptation, to destroy you, to lead you to wickedness and sin. He will not call us to something that is counter to his nature and will. God will allow a situation to happen, but will not intentionally lead us down the road towards sin. He will not entice you to sin, because sin is completely counter to the character and nature and will of God. James says in verse 13, God cannot be tempted, and he himself tempts no one. Amen. God tempts no one to do evil. It is against his character. He is so anti-temptation, so anti-sin and the path towards sin that James tells us that not only does he not tempt anyone, but God himself cannot be tempted. Everybody cool with that statement? God cannot be tempted. We're okay with that? Maybe. I see some head shakes. Why not? Well, you shout it out. You know. Jesus was tempted. Matthew 4. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So just run this back for a minute. Jesus is God. Jesus was tempted. But James says God cannot be tempted. So what do we do with that? Now there are some people who will read that and say, clearly, this is a contradiction. Obviously, the Bible is full of contradictions. 
We can't get its story straight. This is why we don't have to follow and let it lead us and guide us. It's subjective, and we can just kind of pick and choose the places we listen because clearly it's got all kinds of contradictions. It's really not the word of God. Therefore, I can do whatever I want. Before we jump off that ledge, let's talk about context. Because I said this word for trial and temptation is about context. Reading scripture is about context. People like to take verses out of what the rest of the context is and make it sound like it's saying something else. So before we do all of that, let's read a little bit and then we can come back to this question. Because it is a question that we need to wrestle with, and I've been doing it for a long time this week, and so I'm hoping you guys can help me with it. He says in verse 14, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. When it comes to our temptations, it's not God doing it. James says, it's you. It's your desires. It's your heart. It's your soul. He says there in verse 14, there are three words that really pretty clearly describe what it looks like to be tempted and fall into temptation. The first one being tempted. When each of us is tempted, this word is driven toward sin and destruction. We've already covered that. Each person is tempted when he is lured, when he is carried away, dragged away. Think of it like fishing, like a hook at the end of the line. For the fish, the bait on that hook looks enticing, looks appealing. It seems too good to be true, and it is. Because on the other side of that bait is a hook to get them in the mouth. Driven toward sin and destruction, carried away by it, and enticed by his own desires. Enticed is a different kind of metaphor James goes into. Similar concept of being lured, being led into something. Another word for it would be seduced. It's a sexual term. Each person is tempted, driven towards sin when they are carried away, dragged away, seduced. How? By his own desire. Where does the action of your temptation come from? It comes from within. The occasion for the temptation may be external, but the true temptation is internal. The call is coming from inside the house. The external presentation of a situation to sin, the chance to tell a lie, is there. But it is your deceitful heart that chooses the lie. The external opportunity to indulge in food, drink, gambling, drugs, addiction, whatever it may be, is present. But it is the idolatrous yearning of your own heart that chooses to indulge in. And so while the external temptation is made available, it is the internal wickedness of our hearts that is lured and enticed. He continues this idea and even goes with the seduction one, continuing in verse 15. This desire that is within us, when it, has, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This desire, when given into, really what James is saying is, when we give into that temptation, when we allow our desires to drive us, to be lured, to be enticed, we are committing spiritual adultery. That's what he's alluding to here. Our sin is spiritual adultery, forsaking the covenant with God that we have made for someone or something else. And this act produces something. Just as sex produces children, the desire combined with the external temptation produces a spiritual child of its own known as sin. And that child grows and learns and develops and is fed 
and nurtured by our wicked desires, and when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sin equals death. Sin kills. It causes havoc and chaos and evil everywhere it goes. It will not only kill you, it will hurt and destroy many people and relationships around you. And yet we convince ourselves we're in control. We know better. We know what we're doing. It's not hurting anyone. This is just my little thing. This is just my thing I struggle with. But I promise you, when that grenade of sin explodes, it creates far-reaching shrapnel in people and relationships you couldn't possibly imagine. Secret sin is deadly. Bring it to light. There is freedom in the light. There is community in the light. There is Consequences, sure, there are consequences for our actions. And we convince ourselves the consequences far outweigh the positives. And so we keep everything locked up. We keep everything hidden until we can't control it because we never really could control it. And then it explodes and destroys everything. But there is grace. There is redemption. There is restoration in the light. Staying in the dark will lead to nothing but isolation and alienation and eventually your own destruction. That's what sin does. You aren't in control of it. It's not just your little secret. It's not even a secret because God knows all things all the time, so you're not hiding it from him. Confess it. Bring it to light. Seek out community. Let others walk with you and watch how God moves and brings you healing and life and restoration. Sin does nothing but take from you. Its promises are a mirage. There's nothing of substance or reality there. But what God promises, what God offers is grace, is hope, is life, is mercy, forgiveness found through and in Jesus. Where, whatever your sin is, whatever that thing is, he died for it. He already paid the penalty for it, and it's forgiven and done. So let go of it and choose life. Choose the life offered to you by putting your faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin. So let's go back to verse 13. Let no one say when they are tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God cannot be tempted, but we know he was tempted. We know he was given the occasion. We know he was put in the occasion with the devil when he was hungry and thirsty. We know he lived and experienced a life of being fully human. But the reason James can say that God cannot be tempted with evil is because though Jesus experienced the occasion, there was no desire within him to be lured and enticed by. In John 1, 1 John 3, 5, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. That means he didn't have a sin nature. That's why we say James is Jesus' half-brother. He, he wasn't born of a man, right? It was Mary was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was perfect in that regard. He was free of blemish and blame. The desires of his heart are pure and righteous and holy, unmarked by the blemishes of sin that, were, that we are by nature born with into this world. So God cannot be tempted with evil because there is nothing within himself that would be spurred on to that, who would see that and say, ooh, that looks good. Oh, that looks fun. Oh, I want to be taken in by that. 
So again, as I said before, and I'll say it again, God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Amen. We can rest in that. We can hold on to that, that he is trustworthy, and he is above even the ability and concept of sin. That means we don't have to worry about whether or not he's going to go rogue and do something evil. It's not in his nature. There's nothing about him that would lead him that way. Though he knows firsthand that sin brings forth death because he willingly went to the cross and died on our behalf for our sin. Which in itself proves once again God's trustworthiness, his dependability, his faithfulness, his goodness, his kindness, his love, his grace, his mercy, his compassion. All of it shown in Jesus at the cross. Phil Wickham has a song out right now. It's called This Is Our God. And the chorus says, this is our God. This is who he is. He loves us. This is our God. This is what he does. He saves us. He bore the cross. He beat the grave. So let heaven and earth proclaim that this is our God, King Jesus. He is the good and faithful king, the righteous and just king, the king of kings and lord of lords, the creator and sustainer and savior of all existence. This is our God. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. When we remember and dwell in who God is, when we remember that he cannot be fiddled, messed with, that he cannot be tempted, he cannot be lured into evil, when we remember that he is all good, all holy, all just, all right, all perfect, we can rest in that. We can rest in knowing who God is, and it works like glasses on our spiritual eyes. It puts things into focus. And that's what he says here. That's what he goes on to say in verse 16 when he says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Don't get it twisted. Don't get confused. Everything good comes from God because he is all good. There is no varying shades of gray with him. There is no yin to his yang. He is all good all the time. Again, 1 John 1, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Deuteronomy 32, 3 and 4, I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. He doesn't change. We don't have to worry about what kind of mood he's in. We don't have to worry about whether or not he's paying attention. He is dependable and reliable and faithful. We can rest in him. We can rely on him. We can go to him with any and everything, knowing that we are welcomed into his presence as his children because he loves us. James closes out this section in verse 18. He says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. It goes back to this giving birth metaphor, right? Temptation and idols and our sinful hearts conceive sin and it grows to death. But here is a picture of life producing life. He brought us forth by the word of truth. We are birthed into a new life through the gospel. In John 3, we're told of a rabbi named Nicodemus who goes to see Jesus. He goes to meet Jesus late at night when nobody's paying attention. He's intrigued by this new teacher who's making a name for himself. He even admits to Jesus that Jesus is from God. He says, the way you speak and the things you do, you have to be from God. Based on everything I've seen, everything I've heard, I know that you are not just another rabbi. You're much more than that. 
And this is how Jesus replies in John 3. I'm going to give you a little bit of the back and forth between them. Jesus answered him and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the, or the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It was the will of the Father that sent his son, that sent his son to suffer and die for our sins. It was his decision to give us new life through a spiritual new birth, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. He did this not because we earned it or won it or are just purely awesome on our own. He did this of his own will. His perfect, gracious, holy will. It was his idea, his desire, his plan, so that we can be first fruits of his creatures. The set apart. That which is to be offered back to God. As a way of thanking him and honoring him and glorifying him for his faithfulness, kindness, and provision. When the harvest was taken, the first fruits, the first things, the best things were set apart to honor God, to thank God for the way he provided in the harvest. We say it often here that when you become a Christian, when you put your faith in Christ, we are saved from the wrath of God towards sin to be a blessing to others, to give glory to God, to serve him and enjoy him and love him, but also to love others so that they might see the glory of God for themselves and be called into the family of God. You were saved with a purpose, a purpose beyond your own eternal relationship with God, but to be used as a declaration of the faithfulness of God in this world. Yes, we face trials and we face temptations and we are called to endure, to remain steadfast in the midst of it. And you can, not on your own, but by the provision of strength and wisdom from God. I said before, if we can remember and keep at the forefront of our brains, especially in the midst of trials and temptations, who God is, we can find rest. And as we do that, we remember not only who God is, but because of our faith in Christ, because of our new relationship with God, who we are. And this is an area I think too many of us lack in. 
Too many Christians aren't fully assured of their standing with God, aren't fully assured of their identity with God. And because of that, when something else comes along, something that sounds interesting or appealing, where you are faced with a trial or temptation, you get taken advantage of and you fall for something less than the best and you get lost in the darkness. As a Christian, your identity, it's not about you. It's not your own, but rather it is wrapped up in Christ, which means what is Christ's is yours. You are not who you once were. You are someone different. You have been brought forth by the will of God, by the word of truth. Believe who you are. Do not forget or lose sight of it. Do not forget that you are a child of God, as it says in John 1.12. That you are justified and redeemed, as it says in Romans 3.24. That you are a co-heir with Christ in Romans 8.17. That you are righteous in the eyes of God in 2 Corinthians 5.21. That you are loved. We heard it in John 3.16. These are truths from Scripture that when you accept the gift of salvation, this is who you are. This is your birthright. And it can be yours today. If that's not you, if you do not have a relationship with God, it can be you. These things can be yours today if you would admit your need for a Savior, admit your need, admit your own sin and rebellion against God. Believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins in your place and choose him to be your Savior and King. These are truths from Scripture. These are birthrights for the Christian. And if you are regularly, daily, hourly reminding yourselves of these facts, dwelling on these things, meditating on these things, that when, not if, but when, the storms and trials and temptations, the hard and messy hits your life, there is rest and even growth in you. This assurance, this understanding, this knowledge, this wisdom, it is here for you in Scripture. The more you know God, the more you know Jesus, what you will begin to see is the more you understand yourself and who you are in Christ. And as you live into that new life, that new birth, that new identity, with it comes steadfastness and enduring patience, a persevering patience to endure this world. And blessed is the one who remains steadfast, for they will receive the crown of life which God has promised those who love him. Remain steadfast, not because of the promise of a gift, not because you want to glorify yourself. Remain steadfast because of the God who has made it available to you, because of who he is. And the only way you're going to accomplish any of this is with him. And that's how it happens. You can't do it on your own anyway. Remain steadfast because God loves you and is for you and is with you. Him. That's what this is about. Where is your heart focused? It needs to be focused on him. Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in this city and in our lives and in our families and in our relationships, in our interactions, in our thoughts, in our actions and in and through Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever and ever. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you God, we know we can come to you and not worry and not fear and not wonder. That we can just come and be. We can be exactly as we are. We can be 
happy and rejoicing. We can be sad and scared. We can be angry. We can be frustrated. We can be confused. We can just be us in your presence. And you don't get mad and you don't get angry or annoyed. You don't brush us off. You enjoy when we come to you. God, help us to remember that. Help us to remember that you are all good and all pure and all holy. And even in the midst of the hard, when we're looking for someone to blame, when we're looking for someone to accuse, God, help us to look inward and to remember it is our own wicked desires that have put us in the situation we are in. It's not you. You're the safe spot. You're the rest. You're the one that helps us and grows us and cares for us. God, help us. We need you. You know, we know we can't do this on our own. We can't remain steadfast on our own. We don't have it in us. But with you, with your spirit, there's nothing you can't do. And you call us and you choose us to live in this world and to experience these trials, to, to walk through these hard times and these messy times and these exhausting times. And you call us to be part of reflecting your glory to this world and the way that we live through these things. And you did that knowing full well that there are going to be times we're going to fall on our faces. And you pick us up and you clean us off and you say, okay, let's go. God, there's so much grace and so much love and so much hope and so much goodness there. God, help us to just stop. Just stop and just be with you and enjoy you and enjoy who you have made us to be. God, keep on the forefront of our minds who you are and who you make us to be. So much of our life, so much of our world would be so different. We would just rest in knowing you're good. And we're not perfect and we're works in progress, but You're working on us, and you're, you're growing us, and you're, you're going to use us. God, we know we're going to walk through hard. We're going to walk and see and experience hard and exhausting. Help us to have a right perspective. Help us to have our hearts and minds fixated on you in the midst of it. God, we thank you and we praise you for who you are and what you have done and what you are doing and what you're going to do in our lives. Amen.